Hi, and welcome back to Jewish Reaction. My name is Rabbi Steve Berg, the International Director of NCSY. And I'm Rabbi Yaakov Glasser, the Director of Education for International NCSY. And it's wonderful to have everyone back here at the Jewish Reaction. Welcome back. We've uh, been enthused by the emails that we've been receiving from really around the globe. Um, the Nachum Siegel Network, the NSN, has really just been absolutely tremendous um, in getting people out there. And I've just heard uh, great feedback. Yeah, Rabbi Berg, uh, I think last week we ended up doing shows separately because I know that you were traveling throughout uh, Germany for a major milestone in uh, German Jewish history. I thought maybe this morning you could share some of that with our audience. Yes, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I was uh, I was indeed traveling last week when I was unable to be with you, and um, I went to Germany, specifically to Cologne, uh, flew into Frankfurt, uh, took a train to Cologne uh, to be there for the third Chag Smicha, um, for the Orthodox Seminary. It's a Hildesheimer Seminary. It's a continuation from before the war. And uh, this was the third one that uh, that I've been to. They produced about a dozen Rabbanim for all over Germany. And that must have been just incredible in a country with the type of legacy and history uh, that Germany has. And, of course, just even what the name of the country evokes emotionally in the hearts and minds of Jewish people. Cer- certainly a Chag Smicha, producing Rabbanim, is not something that one would think to associate uh, with Germany. So w- where are they holding? Like, how big is this yeshiva? How vibrant is this yeshiva? Well, the, the yeshiva is one of the most vibrant uh, yeshiva in the world. And I always tell people if, if they can fly to Israel, if you fly Lufthansa and, and stop off in Berlin just to, to see the yeshiva, it's really amazing. They've got about 60 students from all over Germany. There's about 150,000 Jews in Germany today. The overwhelming majority are of Russian descent that came over there when the uh, economy collapsed in Russia. And uh, these Bahram, they're basically from from originally from Ukraine and Belarus and all these places, and they've come to Germany and they have this incredible yeshiva there in Berlin. They have a day school now in Berlin. They have a, a seminary in Berlin, uh, and they're producing B'nai B'nos Torah, and they're also producing Rabbanim to go out across the country. It's really incredible. You know, it, it it just shows that no matter how hard you try to extinguish the Jewish spirit, um. You know, it, it, it just, I, I tell you what was really amazing to me. What amazing to me was uh, in the uh, Chag Smicha itself. So first of all, you know, you mentioned Germany, and uh, they, they don't shy away from the past. You know, I heard a number of speakers there. I was very lucky. There were three speakers in English, uh, former ambassador to Austria, uh, Ronald Lauder was there, spoke. Diane Aaron Troy from England spoke, and I also spoke. So we all spoke in English, but they also had uh, translators there. So you were able to put on headphones and, and listen to everything. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not ignored. The history is not ignored. They had the foreign minister of Germany spoke there, um, which, which he addressed it head on, you know, and how proud they were that they were able to come to this point. That's really incredible. You know, that every summer we send a group of NCS wires to Germany. Yeah. Uh, on our incredible flagship leadership program, Jolt, where teenagers from across North America actually devote a substantial portion of their summer to working with kids who are growing up in these areas who are quite assimilated and providing them with a sense of Jewish identity and Jewish experience. And in terms of the leadership that it instills within the NCS wires, it's just remarkable. It's just incredible that a place that we so associate with the destruction of the Jewish people uh, is something that, you know, only, only the Jewish people could then find the seeds of rebirth 
uh, in those types of in those types of environments. It reminds me of that Gemara Makos, Rabbi Akiva, and his colleagues looking at the Harabayas and everybody else singing destruction and seeing desolation, and Rabbi Akiva laughing because he recognizes that in the ashes of destruction are actually the seeds of redemption. And, you know, it would just seem that the whole concept of graduating a class, not just of, of students who learned in yeshiva, but future Jewish leaders, that Germany could be a place where both high school kids from North America and, and future rabbanim are emerging from there. It's, it's just an, an amazing story. Yeah, I think that's why I was drawn originally to the work that was being done in Germany uh, by Rabbi Spinner, who we had, a, we had on the show a couple of weeks ago. Um, it, it was really this realization that... The way to rebuild the country was to reach out to the teens uh, and to create a program um, there. It's called Amachad, um, affiliated with NCSY, to go out and find the teens that were searching for Torah, thirsting for Torah, and to bring them to the yeshiva and have them grow up and be able to rebuild the country. And when I say rebuild the country, I'm talking about the neshamas that are there. There's so many Jews that are very distant from Judaism, and these Rabbanim, they had recently... Um, the, the, the rabbi in Leipzig, who I'm very, very close to, the first trip I took to Germany seven, eight years ago, he was uh, just post-college. His name is uh, Rabbi Jolt Bala, who's originally from Hungary. So um, Rabbi Jolt was, uh, is in Leipzig now, and they did a six, six weddings at one shot. And the six weddings were parents of Bala Tshuva were parents that had never had a Jewish wedding ceremony. And what they were able to put together were these six families were to, and you know, I have a, I was given a present to me, pictures of these weddings, you know, and, and one family, their, their son's in the mirror, and then one family, they're doing Kira over here, one's a rabbi over here. It was really, really amazing to see the uh, the work that they're doing there. I mean, it's just... Uh... That is the cycle of, of Jewish history. Did you get a chance to um, perhaps speak with or connect with any of the individual musmachim, either in this trip or in previous trips? It, it would just be fascinating to hear like what the journey is that brings somebody uh, to the point that they are prepared now to go out into the world and serve as a Jewish leader in a rabbinic capacity uh, in that area of the world. Yeah, you know, I, I've, thank God I have a very, very good relationship to, uh, to a lot of the guys in the yeshiva, and I know uh, most of them are smachams, you know, some a little better than others. Um, I, I think what drives them, and I think you have to understand the way um, a country like Germany works. We don't really understand it in the United States because we have a separation of church and state. You know, thanks to the British all those years ago, we, we separated between the two, and, and for the most part, it's it's been a, a pretty... A pretty good move. But uh, in, in other places, there is no separation of church and state. So the Jewish community is part and parcel of the government. They actually vote for a head of the Jewish community. And the synagogues in towns, it's almost like a quasi type of um, government position. And the fact of the matter is there were very, very few Orthodox Rabbanim and, and very few Orthodox Rabbanim that could speak German that could communicate with the population. And what's happening now is because you have this seminary and at the at the Smicha, the head of the Jewish community, who's not an Orthodox man, you know, got up to speak and takes great pride in, in the rabbis that were produced there. And these rabbis are going to be able to go out and, and, and take over communities um, and, and speak the vernacular to the people there and, and converse. I mean, it's really, it's an amazing thing to see. And, and, and these rabbis are driven by the same thing that Rabbanim are driven by around the world, to spread God's Torah. I don't think it's more complicated than that. And uh, they're doing just a fantastic job. Absolutely. I mean, you know, throughout the Jewish world, 
you know, as we begin developing the opportunity to cultivate leaders that not only have the passion and enthusiasm of Torah, but could speak the language and not just the, the language itself, uh, but speak the, the culture of where the assimilated Jews are coming from, uh, I think we're going to see a real resurgence of, uh, of Jewish, Jewish excitement in these, uh, in these various areas. You know, it's one thing to send from the United States uh, a shaliach or somebody to go there and do great work, and even if they could kind of connect with them because maybe they're familiar with the language itself. Uh, but there's nothing like homegrown rabbonim who really, to them, the culture is organic, and they will know how to speak the language of these of these people, I, I always uh, I always used to tell people that you know in order to do Kirov, you had to have grown up with the same Sunday morning cartoons. And, and the bottom line is, what I mean by that is, there's a certain culture that pervades every country, and it's different. You know, uh, we've done NCSY in South America, we've done it in Europe, we've done it in Israel, we've done it other places. You know, we started NCSY um, in Israel, and the first time we started, it actually did not succeed because we we tried using Americans, and then we shifted to using Israelis, and it was quite successful because. You're absolutely right. There's a certain culture that can't be taught. 100%. It, it must have been remarkable to be in Germany at a Chaga Smicha, uh, right in the, in the same frequency of time where, uh, quite an extraordinary, um, controversy had erupted in Germany in terms of the question of, uh, Brismila and various legal restrictions, uh, relating to it. And I know it's something that we discussed on the show a few weeks ago. I was wondering, was that like the elephant in the room? Was that discussed? Was that addressed? Was it sort of just percolating kind of beneath what was going on? I mean, is is there a feeling in Germany that this could pose a threat, a, a rising threat uh, to independence in terms of, of Jewish culture and Jewish identity? Uh, was that was that a, a part of your trip at all? Well, it's it, <laughs> let me tell you, see after the Shemaya. Okay, this is really God's hand. Um, one of the things that they do because the yeshiva in Berlin is every time they have a Chag Smicha, they put it in a different place in the country. The first Chag Smicha was in Munich. The second Chag Smicha was in Leipzig. And the third one, about a year ago, they decided that they were going to put in Cologne, right? Now, a year ago was way before this Brismila controversy happened upon the scene. But what was unbelievable was the entire controversy took place in Cologne. So literally, oh, you know, this Chag Smicha a year ago was planned... <laughs> For the place, you know, which really was the hub of, of all this attention that's been brought down on Brismila. I'll tell you, not, not only was it mentioned, every, I would say um, there were five or six speeches in a row that mentioned it. And that is why the foreign minister came. The foreign minister of Germany came specifically to tell the Jewish community that they understood that Brismila was important and they were going to make sure that they would legislatively take care of it and um, that they, they wouldn't have to, you know, and, and again, the irony plays in right. a place like Germany not being able to have a proper circumcision. The, the, the you know, Ronald Lauder, Ambassador Lauder also said it loud and clear. Um, the head of the Jewish community got up and said it loud and clear. Um, I, I would, one of the things I think that unifies, and it's fascinating, it doesn't matter if you're Orthodox or not Orthodox, bris mila is something that is very important to the Jewish people. And everyone was there and everyone was basically stating it. And that's why there was just a ton of press. I mean, there were, there were television cameras, there were reporters there, there every time someone spoke, there were tons of cameras there because this is Germany. Right. <laughs> and for the Jewish community to, to have to worry about circumcision in a place 
place like Germany, you, you can't imagine um, how that's magnified. And and the German government understands loud and clear. And I've been very proud of a lot of people, Jews around the world, that have have relayed that message loud and clear. Do, do you think it made a difference the degree to which the Jewish community uh, spoke up really around the world about this, or do you think you know the politicians there pretty much treated it as a local issue and and they had to do their posturing in order to make sure that their constituents feel like their needs are being addressed. I mean, that's the real question. When we when we get active about an issue around the world, uh, our youth want to know, our rabbis want to know if we're really making a difference. Yeah, I, I can't even begin to tell you how, how big a difference I think we made because to a certain extent, the German government is very cognizant of the, um, the way it's portrayed and, and its history. And, you know, to a certain extent, to their credit, they've tried to really put that behind them and, 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 you know, change. And then one of the reasons you have all these Jewish refugees now in Germany from Russia is because they gave, you know, exceedingly um, good economic packages after Russia collapsed because they, they do have this, uh, for, for, for want of a better term, German guilt. Um, but there's no doubt that, that, you know, if people from around the world start saying, what's going on there? What's going on? You know, are you kidding me? You know, this is what's going, this is what's happening. They absolutely responded to that. And I think the concern there is, the concern isn't that the, the government doesn't understand that something needs to be done. The concern is the same concern you have for every government, which is they want to do something and then eventually they'll do something. But you know what? You know, what happens a couple months from now? If Queen's quiet down, you get busy with other things. You know, with pressure, you have to keep up pressure to make sure things happen. So I think they're very thankful for the pressure from outside of Germany as well. That's just a remarkable experience. Yeah, it was uh, it was great, and and like I said, uh, you know, anyone that has the chance to be in Berlin, to go to the yeshiva, to stop in there, to see the work that's being done there, um, or to even send them a donation, uh, it's I can't even begin to tell you um, how incredible their work is and how inspirational it is to uh, to everyone. And um, now I think we're going to hand off the baton here, um, and we're going to go to uh, uh, Maury Litwack, who's the uh, head of public policy here at the Orthodox Union. See you soon. Hi, I'm Maury Litwack, Director of Political Affairs for the Orthodox Union, and this is a little taste of uh, politics and uh, Jewish life and culture. Uh, I'm, I've, every week we bring to you a little bit of uh, news on uh, different advocacy in the community, uh, some personalities, and uh, a variety of other things that are going on. And this week we're very fortunate to have a good friend of mine uh, who I've known for quite some time, uh, Matt Lewis. Um, and I'm, before I get to Matt... Just want to introduce him because he has a sort of a long career. Uh, he currently serves as a senior contributor for the Daily Caller, which is a uh, political uh, commentary, political news site, um, which uh, which we can talk a little bit about when we, we talk talking to Matt. And he served previously. He served as a columnist for Politics Daily, and before that, as a blogger for Townhall.com. His writings appeared in GQ, the Politico. Uh, the Daily. Uh, he's been cited all over the place, but um, you actually may also recognize Matt, who's been on MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, uh, all over the place. He's very popular in, in, in the cable um, network as uh, as a host. Uh, he also has his own podcast, uh, which which I had the privilege of going on one time, and it's fantastic. Called Matt Lewis on the News, and he also I think he still he still co-hosts a, a, a blog a show on Blogging Heads. Um, so uh, um, I guess without further ado, uh, Matt Lewis, welcome to the program. Hey, Maury, good to be on with you. Um, and I want to say also that, that we had, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that my first campaign job that I did uh, in politics, I've been in politics for about 11 years, and my first campaign job that I did was under the tutelage of Matt Lewis, who was running a, uh, uh, a campaign in Maryland 
for a uh, Republican who was uh, had very, you know, the odds were against him. And Matt Lewis uh, uh, sort of led the way and triumphed. And uh, uh, it was my first taste of sort of political victory. Uh, but also uh, it was my uh, my taste for uh, uh, the I think the. The innovative and creative uh, juices of, uh, of of a Matt, of, of of a personality like Matt Lewis. So uh, it's an honor for me to have you on the program. Well, thanks. You know, campaigns. That's the thing. They can be uh, they can be fun and they can be exciting and creative. And and uh, I wish more campaigns were that way. But the really good campaigns uh, are are not just sort of you know, checking off boxes and we knocked on X numbers of doors and filling out spreadsheets. But they're, they're about creativity and innovation and ideas. Yeah, and, and, and so when I, wanted, I wanted to get, get into that a little bit with you today. Um, and I'm hoping we can have you, have you back because I think that, that uh, you know, there's a lot that you view and you sort of spend all your time on this. I know a lot of us enjoy politics, but you spend all your time doing this. Um, I, I guess I'll just get into it with uh, on terms of the presidential race. Um, I, what are your what are your sort of thoughts uh, right now? What are your what are your thoughts on this race? Who do you think's up? Who do you think's down? Or I guess that's sort of a traditional co- question. What do you think we should be thinking about when we look at this race? Well, I think that if you look at any of the metrics, Barack Obama is winning. So uh, it's close, but but he leads in most of the national polls. And much more concerning, he leads in a lot of the battleground state polls. Um, so if you look at the tangibles, the metrics, you would assume that Obama will win. The problem is that it is impossible to gauge the future and the mood of the nation. And I think it is entirely possible that uh, Mitt Romney makes a move late. Uh, we've got three debates to go, and I think there are a lot of people out there who are going to sort of decide late. A friend of mine just gave me this analogy recently, and I think it makes sense. He said, you know, Barack Obama is like your buddy, um, and, and you don't fire your buddy on Tuesday. You, you give him till Friday. You, you wait and hope he fixes things, hope, hope he does a better job. And if he's still not doing a good job, you fire him on Friday, and then you take him out for beers. And um, it could be that Barack Obama is sort of like that, that, that voters like him. They want him to succeed. They don't want to fire him. They're trying to postpone the decision. But at the end, when they walk into the voting booth and they don't have a job, they will pull the lever for Mitt Romney. That is not an implausible theory. So, I mean, we, we get a little bit caught up in the minutia of, uh, of the back and forth. I know there's, uh, this Romney video came out, and it's, there's sort of a flavor of the week. Um, do you think that there's anything that's sort of left that, that, that's hanging there that should be a topic in this presidential debate that we aren't currently seeing uh, that you think is going to pop up as, as the campaign escalates or as you talk about with the debates? Well, look, I mean, I think that um, certainly things can pop up. So, for example, with the, the stuff happening in the Middle East and the embassies and the consulate, uh, the killing of our ambassador, that obviously changed the trajectory of the campaign and made foreign policy much more interesting. And who knows what the future will hold? I mean, anything could happen, and that would, you know, big international events, economic meltdowns, all these things can impact and derail presidential races. Um, I think at this point, four years ago, John McCain still had not um, suspended his campaign to deal with the economic uh, problems. So right. that's proof that it's not too late for something to happen. Um, having said that, I, mean, I think that the the really important issues 
don't get much attention. We, we spend all this time fighting about, you know, will Romney release his taxes or, uh, you know, I mean, pick any sort of conspiracy theory about Barack Obama. That's what gets talked about on on MSNBC and, and Fox News. We don't really spend a lot of time talking about substantive issues like the you know the the debt or or entitlement reform. And I think that's really uh, the the thing that we need to do. I think entitlement reform and tax reform are hugely important. And I hope that the debates um, force us to get serious and to actually um, quit talking about, you know, gotcha moments where someone's caught saying something uh, on tape and actually deal with the real issues. Um, I, wanted to, I want to talk about something very important to our community, which is we, when, within these presidential races, we obviously talk about domestic policy, um, but, I, but uh, foreign policy has been a topic, uh, certainly in the Jewish community and beyond. I want to ask you sort of in the context of your expertise, uh, I have that, the, the book that Matt wrote a number of years ago called Teaching Elephants to Talk, and I always think that Matt has a very sort of keen um, awareness of of messaging and sort of the image that can be projected and how you project that voice. What do you, what do you think right now? I mean, you, you briefly mentioned the tragedy um, at the embassy. Do you think that either um, President Obama or Mitt Romney is is right now um, projecting sort of a clear foreign policy voice or something to the that 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 speaks to how they would lead in that arena? No, <laughs> I think that these are both kind of bad candidates. Um, both are introverts, for what that's worth. Um, I, I think that Obama's campaign is based on the premise that Mitt Romney uh, is a bad person, and I think Mitt Romney's campaign is based on the premise that the economy is bad and Barack Obama can't fix it. I don't think either of them have a compelling vision on anything, let alone foreign policy. Um, I do think it's an interesting dynamic that for, for about I don't know, 30 or 40 years, the Democratic brand has been a brand of weakness. And uh, the perception was if Republicans could just sort of check off the foreign policy box, that they were always going to win. If, if national security and foreign policy were the top issues, Republicans could win. Um, it would be a mistake to discount the significance of killing bin Laden. That is a huge game changer for Obama. We can argue about whether or not that's right, whether or not killing one guy who is in hiding uh, should be the game changer it is, but that has really reset the table. And, and Mitt Romney, you know, it's, it's not clear that he, that he wins on foreign policy, despite the fact that we have all this turmoil in the Middle East that, you know, a lot of people think is due to Barack Obama's policies. That's interesting. And then I want to shift to the congressional races. Can you point out a couple, I know you keep an eye on this as well, can you point out a couple of races that you're watching now that you think have an impact from, uh, I guess, a congressional voice or from uh, the shifting of power or any, any sort of Senate races or House races which you're paying attention to, um, which you really think sort of are interesting and, and, and you know, they get lost sometimes in a big presidential race. Uh, but if you look at some of these, in particular, a, a House race or Senate race, uh, it either creates a rising star or, or it, it speaks to an issue that someone could get elected. Are you tracking any of those right now? Um, pretty focused on the presidential race, but I think you're right. I mean, two years ago, the Club for Growth and Jim DeMent um, made some major inroads in electing a new breed of conservative U.S. senator. And so Jim DeMent was joined by people like Marco Rubio and Pat Toomey and Rand Paul and Mike Lee. And I think there's an opportunity to add a couple more conservatives to that list. And, um, you know, in the U.S. Senate, having a block, you don't have to have a majority, but having a block of conservatives 
um, can be can make a dramatic impact. And, and I think that you're going to see the Dement Coalition continue to grow and, and become more powerful. Um, I think obviously people are watching the Todd Aiken race. I mean, that's going to be fascinating. I think he could still win despite the gaff and, and the stumbles. And I think the um, Elizabeth Warren versus Scott Brown race in Massachusetts, I don't know if it says that much about the nation because Massachusetts is so, is so unique, but it, it is fascinating to watch and see if someone like Scott Brown, who um, is an attractive, articulate candidate who has voted very much uh, in keeping with kind of what Massachusetts would want, can manage to survive um, because he's a Republican. All right. Just uh, one more thing I wanted to talk about, which is uh, you, you touched on a little bit, is um, and, and I know you've tracked this as well for a number of years, uh, sort of the the conservative politics in America. Um, what do you, what 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 are your thoughts right now on um, on voices? I guess Paul Ryan was supposed to sort of represent that on the Republican side this year. But what is your perspective on that? Is there a dialogue right now in the presidential race on sort of conservatism? Uh, is the, is there something that we're missing? Because I know that that continues to be, you know, that's an interesting, on both sides, obviously the progressives have their issues and discussions, but I think that there's the conservative issues and certainly highlighted in the convention this year uh, is fascinating. Um, wh- anything you're seeing, anything that uh, is of note? Not really. I think it's pretty much a content-free campaign. <laughs> a lot of gotchas. Yeah. Um, I do think that Mitt Romney's comments about the 47% at least briefly helped spark a debate about entitlement reform, uh, an entitlement society versus an opportunity society. Um, I would have liked more talk about that rather than uh, the horse race process story of Romney committing yet another gaffe. Uh, I think what happened in the Middle East could have sparked a larger conversation about what should America's role be regarding the Arab Spring. Should we be uh, propping up pro-American dictators like Mubarak um, because they're pro-American and they have stability, or should we allow uh, or encourage democracy, even if it means the, the Muslim Brotherhood would seize control? Uh, so these are huge, huge issues that really aren't getting discussed that much, uh, at least not by the media. The candidates sometimes try. Um, I think Paul Ryan is uh, hopefully sends a signal that Romney would be serious about entitlement reform if he is elected, but in terms of changing the... Uh, the commentary during the campaign it, it hasn't really it hasn't really worked that's interesting i like to try to end with something interesting something i don't know even bizarre something fascinating that people can take away you have anything uh anything sort of that caught you or interesting that you want to share look i just think the really interesting story is the republican bench um you know if romney loses and i'm not you know I, i'm not saying he's going to but you know, here, here's maybe a silver a silver lining uh, for those who could be demoralized or depressed. You're going to have amazing conservative rising stars like Mike Pence and Marco Rubio and Bobby Jindal and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie. I could go on and on, Susanna Martinez. It is an amazingly talented bench, and the future is bright uh, if we can just survive between now and the time that these conservative rising stars uh, really take the field. All right, Matt Lewis, thank you so much. It was an honor to uh, to have you, and I, have, I owe you a, a shawarma. I know we did that one time. I owe you a better shawarma. Um, Let's do it. All right. <laughs>
Thank you very much. This is uh, this has been Maury Litwack with uh, a little taste of politics. Thank you. Hi, welcome back to the Jewish Reaction. This is uh, Rabbi Steve Berg here with Rabbi Yaakov Glaser. And uh, we have a topic. Actually, we're here in the middle of the holidays. We're trying to keep the programming kind of focused on uh, Yom Tovim and stuff. Uh, but it's something we really wanted to uh, to talk about. This particular calendar configuration that we're in the middle of gives us many, many days of Yom Tov and Shabbos, and the Jewish community has really been abuzz for about a year now, I think, since this has gone really public. Uh, but certainly the problem uh, finds its sources uh, significantly earlier than that, and that is the whole question of half Shabbos, the whole question of uh, teenagers who on the outside appear to be embracing the world of Torah observance, uh, but when they're behind closed doors, there are certain aspects of Torah observance that they just do not feel either appeal to them or that they can handle. And this phenomenon really took off because the kids kind of culturally began to brand the whole phenomenon as uh, as this notion of half Shabbos. Uh, this yeah. is a concept for everybody, Berg, that, you know, you, you, you don't drive and you don't go to the movies and you don't, uh, you know, you don't do any of the aspects. You don't cook on Shabbos. You don't do any of the aspects of Shabbos that are, are more explicit. Uh, but certain aspects of technology kids are finding are just to be uh, extremely difficult. And that's sort of where this kind of came from, the notion that kids keep Shabbos except for texting and uh, and computer usage. Yeah, I think I think where it first popped on the scene, which is really interesting, is uh, we heard from kids, and this goes back probably oh, I mean, over a year, probably two years ago. Uh, we heard that kids would would meet each other and say, "Oh, do you keep uh, half Shabbos or whole Shabbos?" Like it was their their language of basically saying, "Like, what do you do? What don't you do?" Yeah, and it was just the whole concept of them creating this selectivity about what, and and it wasn't even rooted in necessarily you know any sort of halachic thinking about technology or any sort of uh, feeling that perhaps you know Shabbos uh, observance does not include these dimensions, not include these elements. It was it was almost a cultural conscious choice that was starting to build and uh, and and grow. In terms of of kids just feeling like this was not an aspect of it that they could hold on to, and even if your child is not a child that would be making these choices, uh, I think the whole concept certainly reveals a a tension and a really underlying challenge that our youth are having with the observance of Shabbos, and certainly in a year where there's so much Shabbos and Yantif and such a concentrated period of time, uh, I think it would be worthwhile to open a discussion about what are the causes of this and, and how parents can address it. Yeah, I, I think one of the, you, you kind of alluded to this before and you mentioned it, I think one of the important things to uh, to keep in perspective is that um, it, it's not like a kid is saying, okay, harani muchon muzum l'kayim avera shel Shabbos, you know, they're not like, you know, this is not like I want to rebel against God or like, you know, so the, the you know, the building Migdal Bovel, building the tower to like, you know, attack God. Uh, for a lot of these kids, and people forget this, and it's really a shame they do, but when you're 14, 15, 16, um, you have one great fear in your life. You have one great fear in your life. The one great fear is being left out. And for a lot of these kids, their whole social life revolves around texting. Their social life revolves around Facebook. It revolves around finding out what's going on and what's happening, et cetera, you know, on a constant, constant basis. And, you know, maybe it's an unhealthy basis. I mean, we can go back and forth. But that's, that's they're a little bit addicted to, and they don't want to be le- left out. And, and that's why it's happening. It's not, again, it's not necessarily like something saying, you know, but, one could also argue that Shabbos may not mean enough to stop them. A hundred percent. But that's, you know, that's the tension. 
100%. I think a lot of adults and uh, a lot of us parents don't realize the degree to which the texting behavior has really become part and parcel of their socialization. A lot of us use texting in pragmatic ways. You know, we want to let somebody know we're on our way. We want to make an appointment. We want to have a, a short conversation. Uh, I don't know that many, you know, how many adults have ongoing relationships with people that are almost exclusively through texting and and Facebook and these types of things. And for teenagers, this is their social life. Uh, For many of them, this is how they communicate. And these are the bonds of friendship that are holding them together. Many of them will not see many of these friends uh, for, for weeks on end. And the texting and the Facebook and all these different types of modes of communication become their social world. And there is nothing bigger in a teenager's life than their social world. And so for Shabbos to kind of cut that off uh, becomes really challenging. You know, one of the examples I like to give to adults uh, to sensitize them to how difficult it is, is, you know, when rabbis, you know, we get up in shul and we try to tell adults, you know, it's, it's halakhically forbidden to talk in shul. And, uh, you know, it's certainly true and it's certainly difficult, certainly challenging to retain that focus. But how many adults can really make it through an entire, let's say, we, you know, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Yantif? How many adults can really walk into shul and say, Shavisi Hashem Lenegdi Samid and not, uh, not communicate with anybody in shul other than God for the next three or four hours? I mean, it's, it's for many people, it's near impossible. This is how we communicate. We're social beings. This is what we do. And it's, it's not rebellion against God. It's not even an erosion all the time of an appreciation for how significant Tefillah is. It just becomes part and parcel of our life, and it almost becomes near impossible. But I agree with you, Rabbi Berg, that the solution to this is not to minimize the role of technology in the lives of kids. While certainly we have to give them limits, and certainly we have to give them parameters, uh, we have to realize that it's here to stay in terms of being something that's part of their life. Uh, we have to make Shabbos more inspirational, more attractive, more enjoyable, uh, more dynamic. Uh, we have to saturate the Shabbos experience for teens with opportunities to be connected in more appropriate ways. And I think if we do that, uh, we'll find that we can shift the balance uh, away from behavior that certainly is antithetical to what traditional Shabbos observance is all about. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with that. I, I think also it's it's... One of the things that really concerns me is that um, in many synagogues, you know, they have wonderful youth groups for younger kids. But as the kids get older, there's not a lot socially for them to do. Some shuls have done a good job of onegs and different things. But, you know, one of the, one of the issues with Shabbos is that we have to be realistic. And I think that people need things to do. They need outlets, you know, whether they be games or uh, – <clears throat> and, you know, they, they have this thing, not just in Jewish, but in the secular world, they have like these – you know, family dinner nights with, with game nights and stuff where the family sits around and plays games. Uh, that's part of it. You know, obviously, look, if you have the type of kid that'll sit and learn with you for six hours on Shabbos, it's Kavaldic. But, you know, if that, if your kid is like 99% of the other kids and that's not exactly what's going on, then you have to find outlets for him. You have to find things that they can do. I know that one of the things that my wife does in, in the home is that she makes sure that there's really good, um, lots of food in the home. Now she's from California, so it's usually healthy, but in general, you know, my son's friends like to come back to our house because a lot and once they're there you can kind of keep an eye on them and see what's going on and and stuff like that and i think that people need to prepare shabbos is not like yes we prepare the children we prepare the chicken soup but you have to prepare a game plan of what i'm going to be doing with my kids you know what what what's happening to shabbos you know is there a game we could play is there some way we can interact you know sometimes people have guests for shabbos and they kind of forget their kids are around and, and you know it, that's that's where the danger comes in 
Hundred percent. It's it's amazing. I, I had just written down the word preparation. You know, Chazal say Ein kedusha hachana, that you cannot have any sort of sanctity in the world uh, without proper preparation. In fact, Yom Kippur um, certainly captures that notion in the fact that we have a mitzvah to go ahead and eat the day before Yom Kippur to really solidify that concept. That uh, if you want to create an atmosphere of holiness, of sanctity, it has to be fashioned, it has to be prepared for. Uh, you have to figure out what elements are hostile to creating that atmosphere and how you're going to address them. And I think preparing for Shabbos has many different components, certainly ensuring that kids are well entertained. I think also, you know, helping the meals move. You know, it's become a little bit more fashionable for adults to kind of congregate around a Shabbos table and for these meals to go on for hours and just schmooze and schmooze. And sometimes the kids disappear, and so we sort of out of sight, out of mind. I think it's important to, to keep things moving, that uh, especially on a long Shabbos, there should be a, a plan, like you like you said, a, a game plan of when they're getting together with friends, when the family is doing something. Uh, if, if people are laying down, it shouldn't just be the parents disappear uh, for three or four hours while kids are just roaming the home and roaming the streets. Uh, there, there does have to be a plan, and, and I think we have to focus our communities on addressing this as, as more of a priority. What is going on in our schools? Uh, what could be uh, activated in the homes of some of our educators? I know that there are definitely schools where some of the Rabbeim and some of the Moros will host kids throughout uh, the year for Shabbos, on Shabbos afternoon for an Oneg on a Friday night. Uh, there are many, many opportunities, but the more halakhically appropriate environments that we could construe that allow our kids to have an outlet for Shabbos, the more successful we'll be. Yeah, yeah that, that's for sure. And, and like I said, and, and you keep saying, we all keep saying, and I could keep repeating it over and over again, planning is half the battle. Um, so many of us just trip into Shabbos and we just assume that, you know, it'll it'll just take care of itself. And, and it won't, you know. And uh, I think that part of parenting um, is is a lot of planning. And I say that and I sound so glib because I have an incredible wife who um, spends so much time on, on thinking about our kids and what they could do, et cetera. But, you know, my wife has always been very good about, you know, play dates and who, who the kids, where do they go to and take them around. And I have kids all ranges. I have teenagers as well. But you know, a lot of it is is just is just thinking about the, the plan and speaking to rabbis, speaking to, you know, there have been great parents in our neighborhood, I happen to live in Bergenfield, um, who organize like a Mishnahis in the afternoon or who organize, you know, some kind of learning party and things. And, and you know, the community has to be, I think, a little bit better um, at doing things for high school kids and doing things for junior high kids and having, you know, things that are Torah appropriate um, atmosphere for, for these kids because, you know, boredom doesn't lead to good things. Absolutely. And, you know, I know as parents, we tend to underplan for those kids because they're a little more independent and they're not necessarily even asking for it the same way. So whereas your seven or eight year old will say, I want a play date for Shabbos, please call so-and-so. Your 15-year-old is not going to come up to you and say, I want to play date for Shabbos, please call so-and-so. And so if it's not if it's not established, if there isn't a framework in the community to begin with, where you say to your kids, look, you know, this is where you got to be, Shabbos afternoon, and I know that there are madrichim there, there are counselors or advisors or, or rabbis or somebody there to provide a inspirational and, and recreational and enjoyable Shabbos atmosphere, uh, then, then it'll go well. I thought one of the great things I, I heard was that in New Jersey and CSY in uh, the Teaneck area, uh, there were a group of kids that were uh, going to a home for the aged and basically spending Shabbos there. Is yeah, that- absolutely. This was this was a remarkable thing. We took um, in New Jersey and CSY a group of teenagers instead of doing the traditional walking over Shabbos afternoon, they went and spent an entire Shabbos in the old age home. They slept in the facility. 
they made Shabbos for the residents, and they've gone uh, month after month, and they've developed close relationships with the residents of the home. And it's just been a very growing, edifying experience for all of them. And that's an example of something constructive, something that costs very little money. Believe me, the, the retirement home was more than happy to host us and pay for all the meals and pay for all the food. The truth is, uh, it really costs us nothing. I hope, hope we didn't charge for the program. Happy parents listening to the, uh, Radio show here. I want to know what's going on. The truth is, the staff certainly is the main anchor for that program. But the truth is, it's uh, there are creative outlets that we could develop for our kids for Shabbos, and it uh, just takes time to really invest in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, great. Uh, well, we're gonna leave you off here because we're gonna move on to Rabbi uh, Farrell, uh, who is a rabbinic coordinator with the OU, and he's gonna talk about the issue of para food used with dairy and meat utensils concluding the unexpected issues using knives. Tune in to learn how to be a smart kosher cook and consumer here at the uh, the OU. Welcome to a series of kosher tidbits, which will examine various aspects of keeping a kosher home. These presentations are based on a series of seminars originally given in Congregation Ahavas Israel in Passaic, New Jersey in early 2011 dedicated to the memory of Mrs. Kathy Cummins, Zichrona Livracha. The OU expresses its appreciation to the Marada Asra of this congregation, Haravron Yitzchak Eisenman, for allowing the seminars to be posted on the OU website. In this installment, we will discuss the well-known phenomenon known as DE, as well as the potential kashrus pitfalls with knives. Often, a person will heat up a par food in a non-parv utensil. For example, macaroni in a dairy pot or potatoes on a meaty tray. In the rabbinic literature, such a food is called a nat barnat. If the utensil is dairy, the food is popularly known as DE, for dairy equipment. I imagine that if the utensil were meaty, the food would be called ME. DE and ME foods occupy what one might call a twilight area in Ashkenazi halacha. DE food may not be eaten with meat, and ME food may not be eaten with dairy. On the other hand, one need not wait six hours after eating ME food to eat dairy, and one need not wait six hours after eating meat to consume a DE food. This is because the absorptions of dairy and meat in a DE or ME food, are weakened by the two transfers. The leniencies notwithstanding, an Orthodox rabbi should be consulted in case of what we'll call a mismatch. What are some examples of mismatches in this context? Let's say a DE food was heated up with a meaty food or in a meaty utensil, or vice versa. In many cases, there will be no kashrus problem whatsoever. Indeed, sometimes making a mismatch is outright permissible. But it takes a rabbinic expert to know when the mismatches are acceptable. Often consumers want to know if they can use the ingredient panel to determine if a food certified dairy is, in actuality, DE. This is an approach fraught with kashrus risks. First of all, not every consumer has the education required to determine an ingredient's status as parv or dairy. 
Second of all, even if the ingredients are indeed all parv, the product may be certified as dairy because it is processed on equipment that is not cleaned well between dairy and non-dairy. The quality control director in a factory may have decided that the quality of the parv product is not affected by the presence of dairy residue. If one is curious about the DE status of a dairy-certified product, it is imperative to contact the certifying Kashrus agency. We now move to the topic of knives. Knives create issues in halacha that other utensils do not. Generally speaking, a cold dairy food and a cold, clean meat utensil cannot render each other non-kosher. For example, if a wedge of cold, dry cheese is placed on a cold, clean, meaty plate, both remain kosher. When it comes to knives, however, coldness and cleanliness do not necessarily guarantee the preservation of kashras. A dava kharif, a sharp food, takes on the status of the knife with which it is cut. For example, an onion cut with a dairy knife is treated as a dairy onion. It may not be eaten with meat and might even render a meat utensil non-kosher. This is true for other sharp foods as well. For example, garlic, radishes, pickles, and lemons, to mention only some. An Orthodox rabbi should definitely be consulted if a sharp food is cut with a dairy or meat knife and then is cut or cooked with a utensil of a different type. For example, if one cuts a radish with a dairy knife and then cuts that dairy radish with a meat knife, the radish and the meat knife may have become non-kosher. If that dairy radish was cut with a parv knife, the parv knife may now be dairy. Similarly, if one cuts garlic with a meat knife and then cooks that meaty garlic slice in a parv pot, the pot may now be meaty, and if the pot is dairy, the pot and the garlic may now be non-kosher. Cutting sharp foods is a minefield in halacha. Caution is advised. As we close our discussion of knives, several points must be mentioned. Firstly, there are many appliances that are really nothing more than sophisticated knives. I refer to such utensils and appliances as peelers, grinders, blenders, food processors, and graters. These appliances would be subject to the same halachos as a simple knife. Secondly, the halachos we have just discussed do not apply only to knives. They apply to any utensil used with pressure, such as a spoon used to scoop out a piece from a hard cantaloupe or a fork stuck into a pickle. And finally, if a knife is used without pressure, it is treated no differently than any other utensil, such as a knife being used to spread soft margarine. In our next installment, we will God willing discuss some of the products that require no kosher certification and the guidelines for preserving the kashris of one's kitchen when the housekeeper is a nochris. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome back to Torah on the Web. My name is Jack Abramowitz from OUTorah.org. And today we're talking with Allison Josephs, who's the founder of an interesting website called JewInTheCity.com. Welcome, Allison. 
Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Oh, thank you for joining us. Uh, I guess really uh, the first question is, what is Jew in the City? Okay, so Jew in the City is uh, basically a website uh, with articles, probably most known for its YouTube videos, and, and the goal of Jew in the City is to break down misconceptions about Orthodox Jews, um, and, and you know, I think we say offer a humorous, meaningful look into Orthodox Judaism. I think there's a lot of people, um, non-Jewish and non-Orthodox, that have a lot of negative associations with what Orthodox Jews are. I certainly did when I was growing up, so... I decided to sort of take this issue head on and, you know, use uh, the Internet and social media to, you know, break down these uh, misunderstandings. And what kind of misunderstandings have you addressed through the website? Oh, all sorts of ones. Um, you know, we've done things like <clears throat> the hole in the sheet. Um, we've talked about hair covering. Most people think that under most people's wigs are is a shaved head. Um, we've talked about uh, science versus Torah. I think most people think that if you're an Orthodox Jew, you automatically believe in a literal creation story. Um, we've done, uh, you know, misconceptions around the mikvah. Um, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that need to be, uh, you know, uh, broken down. I think really the, the main thing is just a negativity and a feeling of disassociation. That's a big thing that I felt when I was growing up. We would visit Manhattan probably once a month, and I would look at the Orthodox Jews that I would see there sort of walking along the street and think about how different they were and how weird they were. And I remember the first time I saw a guy in a black hat who actually was a guy from Yeshiva University, not even, you know, the most ultra-Orthodox of circles. The first time I saw him smile, I was shocked that, like, he's allowed to smile. These people actually know how to, like, have fun. So, um... I'm smiling right now hearing you say that. <laughs> you know, it's, um... I think, unfortunately, um, in media, both in, like, newspaper headlines, I was just talking to my father about this a few minutes ago, um, sort of it's all the negative stuff that Orthodox Jews are doing are always called the Orthodox, the ultra-Orthodox, and somehow when positive things happen, if you look at this guy, Idan, that was just on the show America's Got Talent, or the Maccabees, they never actually openly call them Orthodox in any of the sh programs. Look it up online. They call them kippah-clad, kippah-wearing, a Jewish a cappella group from Yeshiva University, but then whenever there's stories about Mullah or cases of defrauding, then, you know, we hear orthodox, ultra-orthodox, and I think it makes a real impression in people's minds about, you know, how they associate orthodoxy. And for me, you know, I got started along my Jewish journey because I was searching for meaning and purpose in life at eight, nine years old, and I never thought to look into, you know, this more, in my mind, strict version of Judaism because it just seems so negative and so, you know, nothing I'd ever want to touch. And it's a real shame because I think it's these negative associations keep so many Jews from getting that opportunity to discover, you know, what's rightfully theirs. Well, you've got a great mission. How has it been received? You know, thank God. Um, you know, they say, like, you know, two Jews, three opinions. Um, and although I can say that I've pleased everyone, you know, there's people, I think, you know, that are at certain points too much to the right or certain point too much to the left that, you know, I'll just never be able to please. But um, sort of that spot in the middle um, is such a wide range of people that I hear from, all different types of Orthodox Jews, people that were religious that left it and, you know, are telling me that um, it's I'm presenting, you know, uh, observant Judaism in a way that's actually appealing to them, you know, people that have, you know, very little Jewish background, really all, and, and also non-Jews, um, and also the relatives of Bali Chuba. So, um it's really, um, 
it, it feels nice to, you know, be able to do something that so many people can agree on because that happens so, um, mm-hmm. so you know, uh, not too often um, for Jews, unfortunately. So Right. Now, you mentioned the YouTube videos. I think yeah. that Jew in the City has, has really utilized the social media much better than a lot of other sites have done. Can you discuss your use of those tools as well? So I'll tell you the thing that I realized about YouTube, because Jew in the City really got to start first on YouTube, um, and after making a couple of videos, I came up with a brilliant idea of quitting both of my jobs while my husband was in law school to, to launch the whole thing. So, um, Sounds like a plan. Yeah, it was a great plan. Yeah. Um, so... Um, what I noticed about YouTube is that a person's personality can come across, um, you know, on the screen, and that's really why I believe people are so interested in celebrities. We are watching them on movies and TV, and we feel like we know them, and they don't know us. It's really a very one-sided relationship, but we look at them, and we suddenly care about them getting married and getting pregnant and getting divorced. And so there's this interesting phenomenon that happens where the person viewing on the screen has this automatic connection. And what I saw in real life is that when a nice, normal, orthodox Jew can have a nice conversation on a plane or a bus or, you know, in some... Can, they can break down those misconceptions just sort of by being there. And I figured since I can't do this or, you know, there's not enough of us to break down these misconceptions one by one in person, um, YouTube, where you can broadcast yourself, can put that message out. You know, one time you make the video and then it can get watched, you know, 200,000 times. I think the videos are, you know, um, over well over 700,000 views at this point. So, um, so yeah, so by, you know, putting out my personality on YouTube and I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and now we actually have some interns running Pinterest and Tumblr and um, it's just sort of a way of, like, putting out a real personality, not some caricature that, you know, a TV show or a movie is putting out of some, like, weird version of an Orthodox Jew, but an actual Orthodox Jew, you know, just sort of saying silly things that I'm thinking, and I think it just puts a humanity to it, and it's suddenly that gap of, like, the us and the them gets, you know, really, it's shrunk. Mm-hmm. Tangential to, to your comment about celebrity appeal, uh, Mayim Bialik from Blossom and the Big Bang Theory, and she's also a scientist, and she's published parenting books, uh, she's been involved with your website, so she's done some videos and, and such with you. Can you discuss that? Yeah, sure. So um, Mayim and I have been learning through Partners in Torah for over six years. Um, the cool thing is that I actually thought of reaching out to her four years before we got connected. On a whim one night, I thought of her. I wondered what happened to her. It was like a decade since Blossom had been over. Hadn't thought of her since then. I tried to find her to um, learn with her through Partners in Torah where I worked. I couldn't get through to her because, um, you know, celebrities generally don't list their contact information online. And then four years later, on her own, we got matched. So since we've been learning, um, you know, she's really grown a lot in her observance and, and her commitment, and she's very vocal about it. I mean, she's basically, I think, probably the most public bald shuva that the world has ever seen before. Like she, Yadu, she blogs like, about you know, it on uh, Kveller, I've seen. Yeah, she talks about it a ton. You know, Montes people sort of saw, like, once he was already religious, but she's sort of going through the process like, before everyone's eyes and sort of talking about the struggles and the stuff that, you know, is coming easier. And I think it's just such a tremendous Kiddush Hashem um, that she's out there like that. Um, and one of the first questions I asked her when we started learning was, did you ever consider why God made you famous? You know, this is one of the things you need to sort of think about as part of your, you know, mission in life and everything that God gives us, both good and bad, we have to somehow use, um, you know, to, to serve him. Um, so, and one of the ways that she has helped you in the city is by, you know, promoting a lot of the, you know, the stuff that we put out there, being some of the videos herself. And like I said before, when a celebrity endorses something, um, it just gives it automatically. You know, what I like to joke is that um, 
I believe that celebrities are the Godole Hador of the secular world, or, you know, are the sort of the, the giants of the secular world. So if you can get, you know, a celebrity to endorse something you're doing, it automatically will get it out to, uh, you know, to more people. Along similar lines, uh, there's a reason I couldn't reach you yesterday. Can you discuss that? Yeah, sure. So yesterday we were up to something pretty fun. Um, I We were in uh, D.C. with our crew, and we were filming uh, Senator Joe Lieberman. We're working on a new video now called Orthodox Jewish All-Stars. Um, it's got a lot of uh, big names, including Senator Lieberman, uh, Mayim Bialik, um, Dimitri Salida, um, Shomer Shabbat from Boxer, um, HBO producer Jamie Geller, um, uh, first uh from female Rhodes Scholar Miriam Rosenbaum. Um, the purpose of the video basically is to show people that if you're an Orthodox Jew, you're not automatically going to become a rabbi if you're a man or a housewife if you're a woman. And not that there's anything wrong with, you know, staying home with your kids or being a rabbi. Those are both wonderful, uh, you know, things to do. It's just that I think people often think that when you're uh, a religious Jew, you're limited in terms of your career. And while, of course, you can't do any career, um, there are so many industries that Orthodox Jews are not only in but are super successful in. And um, I think this is something that people just don't understand and aren't aware of. And, again, one of those things that sort of limits people from ever considering it because if they want to go into X, Y, or Z industry, they might think, well, if I, you know, got more religious, I couldn't live out those dreams. And so we want to show people that, you know, there's a lot that you can do when you stay true to your heritage. So, Fantastic. Well, this is Jack Abramowitz, and you've been listening to Torah on the Web. I'd like to thank Allison Josephs for joining us, and Thanks congratulations on five years of Jew in the City. Thank you. Check it out at jewinthecity.com. Hi, uh, this is Rabbi Steve Berg with Jewish Reaction. Thank you for being back here with us and uh, for being with us like you are every week, and I'm here with Rabbi Glasser. And I wanted to take time to thank uh, uh, Maury Litwack, who's the head of public policy here in the Orthodox Union, for being uh, with us here today, and uh, Rabbi Jack Abramowitz, who's the, uh, in charge of all things Torah here at the OU, and specifically stuff on web, and Rabbi Farrell from OU uh, Contras. And um, we will not be with you next week because it's Sukkot, and I hope everyone has an incredible uh, Yom Tov. Absolutely. Everyone should have a wonderful Chag Sameach. Enjoy the Sukkah. And uh, we will see you when Yom Tov is over. Yes, and uh, we hope to see you at Great Adventure. And we hope to see you at Hershey Park, which is uh, NCSY will be at both. So you can go to uh, the New Jersey NCSY website. What's that uh, website? www.njncsy.com. Yes, and we hope to see you at uh, both places. Have an incredible, incredible Yom Tov.